Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 40. Father, thank you for a chance to come together. What a joy uh, to worship together. What a joy to sit up front and hear the voices of my brothers and sisters singing out, unashamed of the gospel and the truth that we sing together, Lord. Father, we know the world has a very different view of gathering right now. But we have a mandate from you that we are not to forsake that gathering, that we are to be together and we are to sing, shout, make joyful noises to our Lord and Savior. And Lord, we rather obey God than men. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are in more difficult areas. They have tightened down on them. Lord, we pray you would give those churches strength, give them creativity, and help them know when it's time to meet, Lord. Give them faith and trust in the Lord. But we are grateful for our governor and leadership here in Florida, Lord, where we have been able to gather. Help us not to see that as a light thing, Lord. We give you praise for those things. Lord, thank you for our missionaries around the world. We do remember them. Many of them are still in severe lockdowns, Lord. And we pray that they would not be discouraged. They would take this time to resolve again their calling and what you have for them, Lord. Give them creative ways to reach the people that you have been sent to, Lord. Father, now we open your word. We know that it is the words of life. And we pray that it would pierce all of our hearts. We would not be the same men and women, boys and girls who came in here. We would be a little more changed like your son after hearing your word taught. And Lord, help us to be doers of it. In Jesus' name, amen. When Paul finished his first letter to the Galatian church, it was scattered among southern Galatia there. He wrote this, chapter 6, verse 14, but may it never be that I would boast, now listen to this, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his boast, this is his plea. If you want to know what he's about, Paul says, the only thing that I want to boast in is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he makes this statement, listen to this through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, he says, the world has become dead to me and I am dead to the world. See, the cross reshapes our thinking of our relationship with the world. Do you understand that? See, the world wants to reach out and put its tentacles around us. It wants to pull us in. It wants us to be shaped like the world. And certainly Jesus in his great high priestly prayer the night before his death, remember he said that we are in the world. We're not of it, we're in it. There's a big difference. And so when we cling to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, in a sense we're able to fight off the world that wants you. And so we preach the cross here. We preach the whole counsel of God's word, but it is centered on the cross, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. See, the Bible teaches us when we focus on the cross, it helps us separate from the world. John said that the the things of the world are passing away. See, as we study this passage, I want you to think about where does the world have a grip on you? Where has it reached into your life too far and you know it? That it now has control and directs you and maybe has roles of your fears and, and things that it should not have. Where does it need to be separated Paul later goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, 15 through 18, begins to say that Jesus Christ through the cross has reconciled all of us into one body, meaning he has taken people, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, and we're gonna see this in the text, and he has made us his people. So there's this unique group of people who are no longer of the world that he has gathered together. We will see men, women, Romans, all coming together for the cause of Christ in this passage all fixated on Jesus Christ, willing to lay down their positions, even their lives they will lay down for the body of Jesus Christ. I love texts like this. They remind me that there's no division between Romans and Jews. There is no division between men and women in the church. God has unique roles for us to bring glory to him. And I love the fact that God can do such a wonderful thing, he can even bring Californians And New Yorkers, and Floridians, and Georgians. I mean, think about that, what he's done. 
There are even Gator fans and Seminole fans in the same building. It's astounding, let alone you Bama fans. We can all get along in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? See, we focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. And he unites us together. The amazing power of the cross. The amazing power of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we want to focus in on our text. Let me give you four thoughts this morning. Number one, I first want to look at the women and the cross of Christ. The women and the cross of of Christ. All the Gospels mention the women as witnesses to the crucifixion seen here. Luke gives no names, but he acknowledges that they are first-hand witnesses to the death of Christ. John lists several of the women, but he will see today, he focuses on the role of John and his mother. Now look at verse 40 with me. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the lesser, and Joses, and Salome. Now, notice that these women were looking on from a distance. It says in verse 40 there. This is a really a second group of witnesses. First were the soldiers. They were right there, right? Um, we saw last week that the centurion, the one that God opens his mind in the end, uh, there to believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaims for all to hear, certainly this is the Son of God. He is a firsthand witness standing there. You also have thieves, right? One of them. <laughs> He had been mocking the Lord just like the other thief was doing, but all of a sudden God plunges faith into him and he begins to proclaim the absolute sinlessness of the Savior. His wages were deserved and Jesus was the only way to the Father. What an amazing group of the first group. But then there's this second group. And these are the women. And they're at the scene of the cross, not because they have to be there, but because of a personal interest, a strong, strong affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. John 19, 25 through 27 tells us that the women were standing by the cross. Now, somewhere along the line, Jesus looks down, and we'll look at this in a minute, and he deals with John and his mother. But somewhere after that, seems that John seems to take Jesus' mother back to his house, and these women now draw close to the cross. They were set apart, they were back, and there's, and there's some reasons why probably the scene was starting to wind down. Christ has now died, light has returned to the world, they're now less vulnerable because most of the passerbyers are moving on now, and they press in close to see their Savior. They didn't miss anything that happened. Notice the word looking on. It's an interesting Greek word there. It it pictures somebody as a spectator who intently is viewing the scene. They have an interest in in the purpose of the details that are taking place. And though this must have been devastating and truly emotional event for these women, they too are firsthand witnesses of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, certainly the crucifixion was public knowledge. It's still in public record. It's in record in the scriptures for us that Jesus Christ died. But these women offer a personal and what we would call a conformator. They, they, uh, con- they, uh, <laughs> I lost my word I want. They, they give firsthand witness to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can imagine that after the resurrection, the birth of the church comes along and these women are in the church. And listen, they're affirming or confirming is the word I wanted early, confirming the apostles' testimony, but they there with evangelical outreach are saying, look, we saw Jesus die, and he died for your sins. They were there. They were there. You gotta realize how how heretical things got, and they're still here around today. We hear some of this, that Jesus never died, that he was unconscious, um, or he slipped into a coma and then woke up in the tomb, hey, brothers and sisters, if he doesn't die, we die. Do you get that? This text is extremely important to understand. And here's these ladies. They are firsthand witnesses of this. And what a support they must have been to the early plant of the church. Notice that Mary Magdalene is always uh, distinguished 
from the other Mary. She's usually the first in the list. Well, she was from Magdalia, Magdalia, uh, Magdalene, um, which was on the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was there where the Bible first mentions her in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. The Bible says she was possessed by many demons, seven to, take, to be exact. And you can imagine all that came with demon possession. This woman probably was steeped in the most evil of sins until she met Jesus. And this lady's life was completely changed. And you can see this life of gratitude. After Jesus draws Mary to himself, she's completely dedicated to following him. Wherever Jesus goes, Mary goes. You'll see her next week as we get into the uh, resurrection. And she's, she's there at his burial. She's, she's there first before any of the disciples. She's the first one to engage with Jesus after the resurrection. This woman is dedicated to following and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And she is an inspiration to all of us. Mary is often mentioned first in the list probably because of that dramatic conversion she went through. But I think she was also, my opinion, I think she was a dramatic, had a, a dramatic uh, personality or, or dynamic personality maybe, like Peter. The Bible always says and the spokesman seems to be Peter. I think maybe Mary was. And here's why. Not because she was braggadocious in any way, but because she loved the Lord and she's probably first to go, hey, let's go to the cross. Let's go to the cross. I mean, that, what a, she, she probably, let's go. And, and the other ladies are going, oh, this is going to be terrible. No, 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 we need to be there. That's our Savior. Hey, let's go. Let's go see if we can bury him. Hey, let's go to the tomb. She's constantly leading. And because of her love for the Lord Jesus Christ, she seems to be named as a leader among leaders when it comes to the women. Notice the next women, Mary, the mother of James, the lesser, and Joses. This, this Mary is distinguished by her sons, as you notice here. And these James the Lesser and Joses were most likely, by the time Mark writes, uh, very strong early church leaders. And he uses that name as though the readers would know who they are, and that's because they were prominent, most likely, in the early church in Rome. Lesser would distinguish him from other James. There's a lots of James in the church. We know of that already. And this would distinguish him. And then Lesser, uh, it could be a stature. I doubt it. That's kind of mean. Uh, James, a short guy. I think it's probably because of his age. And isn't that encouraging? That this young man becomes a leader in the early church because of his love and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is mentioned alongside his mother. Salome um, her name appears only in the Gospel of Mark here. And Matthew indicates that she is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So who is that? James and John, isn't he? So you can see this unique group of women that have gathered here. Also, John chapter 19, verse 25, indicates that she's the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's one more lady, the Mary, the wife of Calipas, Calipas, um, it's possible that I read many on this believe that this might be the wife of the disciple who's on the Emmaus Road with Jesus as the resurrection. So here are these prominent women all pressing into the cross as the Lord Jesus Christ dies. Look at verse 41 with me. When he was in Galilee, they, that's these women, it's referring to that pronoun refers to this list of women. They used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up, with him to, uh, came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, the pronouns here really distinguish these ladies from the daughters of Jerusalem. Remember in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is dragging his cross through Jerusalem, all these women were wailing and bewailing Jesus Christ. And he turns to them, he says, don't weep for me now, daughters of Jerusalem. These are a different group. These are professional mourners, ones that would mourn for someone that didn't seem to have anybody. It wasn't from their hearts. And of course, he warns them of coming wrath of God upon sin. These are not the same. These are women dedicated to following the Lord Jesus. And they are following and serving him. And this service goes back years, doesn't it? He has this three-year ministry that starts in the Galilee area. These ladies have been serving Jesus for a long time. Now, notice the description of them. They follow him and they minister to him. These are what we call descriptive imperfect verbs. And, and simply what that means is they talk about something in the past tense, but this is what they're marked by. 
These women are marked by the fact that they follow Jesus and they serve Jesus. Ladies, would you like to be marked by that? Would you like someone to write a book that transcends time for 2,000 years and says that you are a follower and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think that's a great testimony. I love the descriptive nature of those verbs. These women follow Jesus from place to place, not only, and think about this, not only just devout hearers, but they are doers. They minister to his needs. Whatever he needed, they were there to meet. And during this whole period of his public ministry, Jesus was entirely dependent upon the kindness of others. We know that the Lord Jesus didn't take jobs. His job was, he said over and over, I am sent to preach the kingdom of God. I'm sent to preach the gospel of God. And so these women played this overarching role to care for our Lord's needs. Now notice it also says there in verse 41 that there were other women who came up with him from Jerusalem. Now Mark mentions the the presence of numerous women who followed Jesus, um, but maybe not to the extent of these ladies here. These ladies were devout and and they made the trip. Notice they're with him. Certainly that is a position, meaning these ladies came physically, but they were with Jesus. They believed in Jesus. In fact, I would say this, that these women, along with the apostles, and and we'll see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in a few minutes, that they probably believed Jesus was the Messiah of the Old Testament. He was the one they had waited for. And look, like, like the men they undoubtedly had expected Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem, set up his temple, and and set up his kingdom, and everything would be set straight. I think what's fascinating is that doesn't happen. Now they're at the scene of the cross, certainly their hopes have been crushed, and yet they're still there. Isn't that fascinating? If you think this is the Messiah, and now he's hanging on a cross, gasping for his last breath, why are you still there? There's something about Jesus. There's something about him. Even though he's dying, these women are staying there. They're captivated by him. He has grabbed their hearts. They they are following him through life and death now. What a beautiful role. See, I think this points out the real beauty of these women who follow Christ. Look, they were suffering, but they remained. Can you imagine leaving everything for three years to follow this man? And now he's hanging on a cross, and it looks like it's all over, and you stay? See, I think that's beautiful. And this points to their beauty and their suffering. Their their hearts are broken. Can you imagine what these women felt as they saw the Lord Jesus for the first time after he'd come back from all of the abuse that he went through, bloodied and beaten and almost unrecognizable. These women are suffering, but they will not leave Christ. There's something beautiful about that. God uniquely allows these women to see sometimes what men can't. That's what godly women do. See, they have a tenderness and a sensitivity that is greatly needed in serving. See, there's people who will serve because, well, nobody else signed up, so I'll just go do it. I wish everybody else would come and do something. That's not what these women are about. See, they're captivated with Jesus. And they serve with a sensitivity. They serve with tenderness. That's changing the way they look at when there's a need, they go and meet it. Think about discipleship. These ladies will go on to be um, leaders in the women's role within the church of the early church. Think about how they cared for younger women. Think about their testimony as they discipled ones that are going through problems. And they could say, look, we've seen Jesus. We, We know who he is. And we know he laid down his life. Think about the counsel they would give. They were probably excellent counselors because people would come, if you're counseled at all, it's, people are being counseled because of sin, either sinned against them or they're involved in sin and they come and they're distraught with their issues. And guess what they would say? Well, look, if it's sin, I have an answer for you because Jesus died for sin. Isn't that great? See, that's what people counseling is about. Jesus died for sin. 
If it's really sin, we can offer an answer to it. We can fix it. If you've got some other problem out there that is somebody else's fault and, you know, I'm perfect, you're going to have a hard time. But if it's sin, there's an answer. And think these ladies knew that Jesus died for their sins and they could give counsel to other women. Think about teaching other women. Sit down, sitting down with another woman and sharing the glories of Christ and understanding the scriptures so they could teach their own children. I, I think what resonates with me is I, I imagine what church would be like without women sometimes. Could you imagine a funeral with no women involved in it or a memorial service? A bunch of guys showing up with some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Hey, you know, hope you're okay. A little punch in the shoulder. How, how terrible that would be. Our, our ladies, you, you, you come and you minister to those who are suffering, those who have suffered a great loss, uh, those that maybe don't understand what God is doing in that moment. There you are weeping with them. I can't imagine doing funerals and memorial services without your help, without your tenderness and your care and sensitivity that you have. How about doing weddings? Can you imagine men running weddings? I mean, I run them when we, you know, I'm performing them, but the touch that women bring, the beauty to illustrate the, the, the glory and magnitude of, of having Christ and, and his church represented in a room like this as a bride comes and, and, it, and how it's decorated and gives us images of, of what's to come. That's the goal of a wedding, and a wife can see that sometimes. A woman can see that. Ladies, how about giving birth... Um, without your mom or women around you. I mean, just the tenderness of, uh, of women as they minister, caring for the suffering. I, I watch a lot of our ladies, um, our certain groups that are here that, that gather regularly and pray for our shut-ins or minister to those who can't make it here. What tenderness they bring. See, the gospel brings this out. See, these women found in this text are not only to be honored, they're to be looked at as examples of the follower of Christ. I wrote in my notes, I said, whenever Christ is preached, there's godly women. For 36 years, I've been preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and everywhere I have preached, God has given a gift to me as a pastor, godly women who are there. The church is, is incomplete without godly women. Women who will follow Christ no matter what the cost. Whenever Christ's church is in need, you'll find godly women. Whenever there is a need of an example of a Christian, you'll find godly women. Men, we should rise up and call them blessed. And these ladies at the cross capture me. They had everything to lose, nothing to gain from a human perspective, and they're there to the bitter end. Second thought, the stewardship of family and the cross of Christ. The stewardship of family and the cross of Christ. The Bible says there were many other women who, had came, who came up with him to Jerusalem. And in Mark's account, it is clear that, that Jesus' mother is no longer at the scene as you look at this. But that's not the case um, uh, when we look at the other gospels. And that's because there's been a great shepherding act by Jesus taking place. Look at Mark, excuse me, look at John chapter 19, verse 26. You might keep your finger in here. We'll jump back and forth to this text a couple of times. John chapter 19, verse 26. Here we see our Lord Jesus Christ caring and shepherding his own mother. This is a blessed text, and this has probably just happened as those women are coming forward. This is the scene that John records John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John recording this, so this is how he, how he terms himself without putting his name in there. He refers to him as the disciples that, God, that Jesus loved. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her in to his house. Even as Jesus was dying, listen, he's bearing the weight of sinful men. He's got the wrath of God pouring out on him. Jesus, the selfless one, is caring for those he loves. It's astounding, isn't it? 
And it's apparent that Joseph, Mary's husband, um, Jesus' earthly father, is no longer there. Uh, Most likely he is dead. It is quite possible that Joseph was much older than Mary. And in this time, at this time of life, in this area, men lived an average age of 42. And that was, and that was it. And so it seems that Joseph's not there. And so, so the Lord now wants to care for his mom after he's gone. Now, the Lord could not commit Mary to his brothers. John chapter 7 says his brothers did not believe in him. So he doesn't put the care of his dear earthly mom into the care of unbelievers. He puts them into the care of a believer, John the Apostle. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that his brothers came to faith. But Jesus entrusted his mother to one whom he loved, the apostle John. Now, I believe it was very kind of Jesus to call her woman here, not mother. I think for a couple of reasons. One, could you imagine him in, in that scene and how gruesome that is, calling out to her and calling her mother? Uh, that might have put them all over the top, Right? I mean, if you just think about the scene and what Jesus looked like and his mother standing there with John the Apostle, that scene is intense. He's every breath, just for him to speak, he is grasping for just a little air in his lungs to speak. And so he calls her woman, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but probably the most important reason is just exactly what he did at the wedding of Canaan. He referred to his mom as woman there as well because he knows that he does not want Mary to see her as simply his earthly, her earthly son. She needs to see Jesus as her savior. And so he uses a very generic term. It's not disrespectful, it's not cold because he wants Mary to know this. And Jesus must be her Lord now. I have been your son for these years on this world, but I need to be your Lord. And the only way to reconcile your great suffering is my great salvation. And so he calls her woman, someone who is in need of Jesus' finished work. And so John now becomes like a son to her, and he takes her to his place. The, The verse says there back in Mark that from that hour on, John took her into his household. And there we know, history tells us, that he cared for the mother of Jesus. Now, when the Gospel of Mark describes the scene in verse 40 and 41, it is likely that John's already departed. So now you have these women who, without the mother of Jesus there. And this may be, it may seem like an unimportant point uh, for Jesus to be concerned um, during this great hour of suffering and sacrifice. But, but the beauty of our Savior's love and compassion for his family members, I don't want you to miss that. He's in the middle of excruciating pain. He takes time to reflect his love on his earthly family. He loves his earthly family. Now the only one perfect in the earthly family was Jesus. <laughs> and I promise you there was great difficulties in those families. We know that they thought Jesus had lost his mind, John chapter 7. You can read it. And then they come around and say, well, maybe he is king, so we better get on board because if he's king, we're going to be right there with him. This was a messed up family. And yet Jesus loves them. Do you love your family? There's probably not one of us in here that don't have some difficult issues in our families some estranged person or someone you're maybe not speaking with or some difficulties. See, Jesus again becomes the great example of the Old Testament prophecies or the Old Testament truths. Love your parents, love your family. In fact, it says this way in the New Testament, um, Ephesians 6, 2, honor them. Honor them. Honor your father and mother. Work hard to be family on this earth. Forgive one another just as I have forgiven you. Be tenderhearted, gracious towards one another. Forgiving one another just as God forgave you in Christ. These are the teachings of the scriptures. And I love this, that Jesus in this time of hour and his greatest suffering right in the middle of it makes sure that his mother is taken care of. I think the lesser point here is the responsibility of children towards their parents, but I want to say this, and Gene and I have noted this many times in this church, that we are greatly encouraged to watch many of you care for your elderly 
family. I think that's a mark of maturity in God. It is such an important thing. Today, so many cast their parents off to places, often don't visit them. We have watched countless elderly die during COVID, separated from their families, not able to see them. I think that's the government's fault and many other things. I can't imagine that, what some people have gone through. I've had people come up and say, by the grace of God, we were going to put our older mother in a home because we're just at the end of being able to take care of her and COVID hit and we kept her home and we thank God that we were able to be with her. See, God gives us instructions to honor our parents, honor family relationships and, and brothers and sisters, there's sin in our lives, isn't there, on ours and on theirs and there causes difficulty but we like Christ should love them. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't cover it up it covers it, meaning we are gracious and kind. We own our own sin and we move forward in our relationships. Brothers and sisters, fight for your relationship with your family. Do everything on your part to keep the peace. Do not, listen, brothers and sisters, don't, don't sweep sin under the rug. It must be confronted. If someone in your family is living in sin, you have to confront sin. The Bible is very clear. If you see your brother in sin, go to them. That's the way God restores but at the same time, at the same time, be full of grace. You who are spiritual, restore the ones who are weak. Much of the world is disregarded these principles. I love that Jesus did this. And, and just one last thought on this, on this point. Jesus is suffering greatly, isn't he? And so when, we, when the verse, you know, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and yet without sin... He's suffering there. He has not come to be there for the end of his mom's life. He's come to be there for the end of his life so his mom can go to heaven. And so he suffers knowing that he is not there to take care of her. So he makes arrangements to care for her. I love this. You could talk on this all day about how Christians should respond to our families and how we should love them. Jesus is again the perfect shepherd. He's the perfect son. He's the perfect family member. And he is the perfect savior. Amen? Third thought. The men who counted the cost of the cross of Christ. The men who counted the cost of the cross of Christ. Well, all the gospel recordings document this, um, particularly uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Um, the burial of Jesus was an important part of the early church teaching. It's an important part of the church today. It links Jesus' death to his resurrection. When we look at places like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4, what a succinct statement of the gospel, it reads this way. Listen to this. For I delivered to you, Paul says, as was first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now notice that. He, was, he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. We do not live out the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ because it teaches us that the wages of sin was Christ's death. And he did die. Look at verse 42 with me. When the evening had come, already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Now remember, um, from noon to three, darkness had fallen over the entire land, possibly the entire earth as we learned last week. And shortly after three, probably right around there, Jesus breathes his last. He said, it's finished, it's complete. There's no more work to be done, I've done it all. And then he dies. The Bible says he gives up his spirit, full control towards the end. And then from, then the Bible says here, when evening had come, and I kind of want to understand what's happening here, from mid-afternoon mid to sunset is what the ancients called the first evening. So Jesus really died in the first evening. And this was where offerings would be given, sacrifices in the temple would be done, particularly on Passover. They're trying to finish the, the killing of all the lambs during this first evening so they can get home for second evening to participate in. And the second evening would be sunset to dark. Sunset to dark. And this is how the ancient world handled that. So Jesus was buried before sundown. So probably about 4 p.m., here comes Joseph of Arimathea into the courtroom of Pilate. As you know, 
it was Passover, and this is this idea of day of preparation. So this changes everything. This is Friday. Saturday is Passover. So they have to have everything ready. And don't, and I'll just take out Passover. Just think about a Friday and Sabbath is coming. And once it's dark, once the sun goes down on a, on a Sabbath, which that's the start of a Sabbath, you can't do anything else. Everything has to be done ahead of time so you don't do anything during that. And so this is motivating some of the things that are happening here. And no work at all could be done on the Sabbath. No Jew would even think about touching a dead body on the Sabbath or preparing a grave. And so these dead bodies had to be removed. The Jews had a law, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Remember, he didn't commit the sins, but he's hanging there for us, right? His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So this is what's taking place. Look at, back to John 19. I want you to understand the scene here. John 19, verse 31. John 19, verse 31. This body has to come off the cross, so there's a process that's going to take place. Verse 31, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that was the Sabbath was a high day, so that, that even, even more importantly, the Passover was coming, asked Pilate that their legs should be broken so that they might be taken away. We talked about this last week. They break their legs so they can't push up and open the lungs to get air, and they just their lungs collapse, and they literally um, suffocate to death. So the soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen and testified, this is probably John, and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures, not a bone of him shall be broken. So what's happening here is there's a confirmation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is proof to confirm that he died. The language and details are clearly um, and exactly given to us so they know that Jesus died and he died in death for our sins. Now, Look at verse 43 with me back in Mark. Flip back to Mark. Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, Joseph of Arimathea articulates where he's from, right? And if you go to look on a map of Arimathea, you won't find it. We, we don't know where that was. But it distinguishes him from other Joseph. He's the Joseph from Arimathea. But what's even more important is he's no longer from there. He's a resident of Jerusalem, and he serves on the Sanhedrin. He's part of that 70 men, that great council that had spiritual oversight of the nation. Matthew chapter 27, verse 60, tells us that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased an unused grave. Now, also, notice in our text that he was a prominent member of a council. That council is the Sanhedrin. So he's prominent. He has social status. He has a great position. And what that comes is wealth. He's a wealthy, prominent man. Matthew tells us that he was a rich man. Luke says that he was part of the Sanhedrin. But notice this phrase, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, that can certainly be said of many of the Orthodox Jews, right? Oh, God is going to come, Messiah is going to come, and he's going to set up his kingdom. A lot of them said that. But that's not the idea here. There's something more spiritually minded about this Joseph of Arimathea. Something has grabbed him. He is now eager to see the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He knew Genesis 3.15. He knew that all the way through the Old Testament, the prophets had promised the coming of a Messiah. And he's willing, look at, he's willing to give up this prominent position, maybe even his life and, or his wealth and his life to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. He cherishes the coming of the Messiah. And his good friend Nicodemus seems to be wrestling at the same time whether this is the Messiah. John chapter three, you remember? What does Nicodemus do? Sneaks out quietly at night. Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? See, God's stirring in these men's heart. 
they're in a prominent position. This would be our Congress. This would be men of great wealth and prominence. Um, they're struggling with the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? Is he the one? Is this the one we should follow? The Bible marks them as secret disciples. John chapter 19, verse 38 After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, comes and asks for the body of Christ. Luke 23, verse 50 says he was a good and righteous man. What a statement. Because Jesus, remember, he had spoken of these men, and he says, look, you guys are wicked men. You make people twice the son of hell as yourself. Right? He, he really comes down on them in Matthew 23. But not this man. This man, the Bible records, Dr. Luke records later that he was a good and righteous man. There was something different. God had given them faith. Notice verse 43. I love this phrase here. He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is a courageous step by this Joseph of Arimathea. It, it can't be overstated. This is going to cost him everything. And Joseph, here he comes forward to prevent the body. Think about what he's trying to prevent. He knows what Pilate's going to do with the body of Christ. You know what he's going to do? He's going to throw him in a grave with those other two thieves. They're going to bury him, and they're never going to see him again. Unmarked grave, most likely. God stirs within Joseph to come, to take action. Uh, Just remarkable to remind us that God can raise somebody up for incredible things. Listen, if God is pushing you to do something, do not resist it. If he weighs on your heart to do something that could be costly, even to your job or, your, or how people view you, follow and obey the Lord. These men are such great examples of that. Notice that phrase, gathered up courage. The, the word has the idea that even dare to do this. He would even dare to walk into the presence of Pilate that he would become bold enough in the front of the most powerful man in the region. And and see, up to this point, Joseph and Nicodemus, their love for Christ was subjected to fear. Well, we we think we want to follow him, but we're afraid. And all of a sudden, God emboldens these men. God strengthens them, and their love for Christ triumphs fear. Think about that. And now they have the courage to face Pilate. And look, Pilate's not in any good mood. He's already mad at the Sanhedrin, these two men and their other 68 partners, because they railroaded him into a corner to kill a man that he believed was innocent. So now you're Joseph of Arimathea. You've got to go into Pilate and ask for a body, and he doesn't like you. You better believe in what you're doing. You better believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dallas Lee Joseph and Nicodemus knew that if they were identified with Jesus Christ in any way, his burial, anything, they were getting strong hostilities to say the least. Mark 43 here is pointing out the contrast between their former timidity that they had and the courage they had now to stand for the body of Christ. I think that's astounding. I love that. It strengthens me. Oh, Scott, come on. Keep running. He's worth it. These men stood, these women stood when nobody else would. Will you stand? Will you stand when this world says you're not meeting? Your God is not true. You have a false view of marriage. We don't care about life in the womb. What will you do? Is Christ worthy enough to cause you to stand? Oh, this is what this message is about. And I think what's even more remarkable is their hope was in a Messiah, a living Messiah. He's dead. And they're following him. That's remarkable. That, that is the changed heart, brothers and sisters. Why would you would just say, most of us would go, well, I'm done. He must have not been the right guy. Not these men. Not these men. They lay it all on the line. See, there seems to be little to gain from this, but these men are after the body of Jesus. Look at verse 44 and 45. Pilate, wondering if he was dead by this time, he being Jesus, summoned the centurion, and he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And asserting this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, it seems Pilate did not first accept Joseph's request, right? Um, I would like the body of Christ. I would like to give him a proper burial. Um, and what does he do? He, he goes, well, I, I don't even know if he's dead. No, no, no this would be very true. 
looking back on records and some of the stuff that's passed down through Josephus and other uh, historians that were there, it sometimes it took two to three days for people to die on the cross, particularly non-Jews. You have to understand that breaking of the legs was common in the Jews. Remember the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, asked for their legs to be broken because they can't leave them on a cross. So non-Jews who were crucified, they didn't care. And some of those people, think about this, some of those people hung on a cross for two to three days until they finally died. And so Pilate here goes, he doesn't know if he's dead. So I think he's marveling at the fact that, is he dead already? This seems awful quick. But then I think also Pilate marvels at the boldness of these men. What do you think you're doing coming into my court? You, the Sanhedrin, that just pushed me into a corner? I think he marveled at these two guys, and mainly because of this. He goes, you're also dead men, you know that. Do you know that the rest of the Sanhedrin's gonna kill you for this? See, I think Pilate marvels at that. Notice the, the word he wondered. Pilate wondered if he was dead. I think this moves right into his, he's questioning what he's wondering, he's marveling at what these guys are doing. So notice Pilate's question to the centurion, the centurion of whether Jesus was dead or not. And that's an interesting thing. We don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us if this is the centurion who spoke out and said, truly this is the son of God, claimed the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it seems to be. And remember I told you that this centurion was the one who had to come back and report directly to Pilate whether he was dead or not. And here's the scene. He says, hey, is he dead? And the centurion here says, look, he's dead. And Pilate regards his report as trustworthy, and, and doubtlessly because this man had seen many people die, and, and now grants this request. Uh, the actual death of Jesus is again confirmed right now not only with the, the women and Joseph and Nicodemus, but now with the centurion and Pilate, one of the strongest men and leaders of the area. He's dead. He's dead. And this rejects all the heresies of people who said, oh, Jesus must have been just asleep or he was in a coma or something. He woke up, he rolled the rock and left. He's dead. And brothers and sisters, I want to say it again. Praise God he died because you and I are hosed if he isn't. We'll suffer all the wages of sin for ourselves for eternity if he's not dead. And I love this account. 46, Joseph bought a linen cloth and took, it, took him down and wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which was hewn out of rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb well, possibly Joseph on his way back and forth between Pilate and Golgotha, somewhere along the line, he seems to purchase these burial linens. And, and taking the body of Jesus off the cross was no easy task. This was gruesome. I, I think, I, have I described it well enough what he would have looked like after being crucified and beaten, all the stuff? And how does one man do this? And so it seems that here's Nicodemus in chapter 19 of John verse 39 it confirms that the presence of Nicodemus his fellow councilman was there and so these two men mutually agreed to go get the body of Christ and what difficulty that must have been as they took him off that cross knowing what cost it would bring to their lives the Berylinians were were um, made of pieces, they were prepared pieces, and they would wrap the body, but then they would wrap all the, the extremities and the head, all have separate pieces to them. And as they buried them, they put spices and ointments in the folds and the strips of the cloth there. That In John 19.40 said this was a burial custom of the Jews. Notice back in Mark, though, it says they laid him in a tomb which was hewn out of the rock. John says the tomb was nearby, so this wasn't very far away, so they took the body of Christ, this bloody, beaten body, and, and they, they somehow managed to get him to this tomb that Joseph had purchased. But most likely the tomb was cut uh, right out of rock, and uh, it had you know, an upright opening to it, and, and there no one had laid in it. And, and, and just doing a little research, nobody had these tombs wealthy. You would not have had this. This was common to Jerusalem and it was common to the wealthy families. Uh, Matthew 27, 60 says Joseph owned this tomb. Luke 23, 53 said it had never been used. And you think about this, what's going on here? Well, once again, even in Jesus' burial, he's fulfilling scripture. Let me read this verse and listen very carefully to this. Isaiah 53, 9. 
His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. See, this is exactly what Joseph of Arimathea, and many, that many think that he may have now been opened his mind to that Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Because he knew what would happen to Jesus. They would take his body off a cross, throw it in an unmarked grave with a bunch of wicked men who deserved death and, and possibly these two other criminals, certainly one was saved now, but thrown in there, dirt thrown in their face, covered up, no one would have ever known where he was. See, it's possible that Joseph of Arimathea understood that his grave was assigned with the wicked, yet, there's a big change, yet marks a change that he was with a rich man in his death. Maybe Joseph read this and said, God, I'll be that rich man. I will not let my Savior be thrown into an unmarked grave. He can have mine. I'll be the fulfillment of that text. Isn't that awesome to kind of think about? Um, and, and, and Jews even today don't understand Isaiah 53. They don't know who it's about. But I think possible that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus believed this to be true. And the Bible says it was done because there was no violence, nor was any deceit found in the mouth of Jesus. He was impeccable. He was impeccable. And Joseph knew it. And I think he had faith and took that body of Christ. The Bible says that he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. You see there? And when they carve these tombs out, they'd often carve a track where a stone could be put there. And that was for several things. One, to keep tomb robbers out. The wealthy would often put things that the person loved or something to mark them by, uh, often uh, financial things, things that were of great financial value that were in there. So tomb robbers would come. And then there was always the hungry dogs and creatures that would come look for a meal. And as gruesome that was, was, that's why they built the tombs the way they did. Matthew 27, 65 says, Pilate sealed and guarded the tomb at the request of the Sanhedrin. So he's dead. He's in a tomb, sealed. And we will see his resurrection next week. Now, one last thought, and then we'll just have a short point where we'll be done. This was all done by two men who were closet disciples. They've come out. <laughs> And they've come out in a big way. This seals their death. Josephus says that many of these men and women were murdered later on. The Sanhedrin and the rulers of Israel could not have eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of these people died because they stood for Christ. And this is what Christ calls us to do. That we would grow in our knowledge and our wisdom of him and we would be willing to stand. We sang that in a song uh, that Hayward introduced to us. It would stand for Christ. And I love these men. And I love these ladies. They are such encouragement to us. Let's look at one, this last quick thought here. For drawing power, the drawing power of the cross of Christ. The drawing power of the cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but, what a great conjunction here, but to us, that's us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. You say, why do these men do this? Why do these women do this? This costs their life, this costs their fortune, their 5013, excuse me, their 4013B retirements. I mean, they lost all of it. Why would they do it? Because it's the power of the cross. <laughs> See, it makes you decide that Jesus Christ, and he, of course, he grants you the faith to believe this, but you believe that he's worth giving things up for, right? He believes to say, you know what? We're not going to believe the world on this issue. We're going to trust our Bibles. We, we're going to give up three hours on Sunday morning to go to Sunday school and to church and to be with the fellowship of the saints and to hear the word taught. We're going to give up time in the mornings and read our Bibles. We're dedicated to Christ. See, this is the power of the cross. And when you study these individuals, they are consumed with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet today we have a church that constantly, not ours, but a constant church that just wants their needs met. That's not the power of the cross. The power of the cross is you lay down your life for him. And this is why we preach the power of the cross. Jesus himself said in John 12, if you lift me up, I'll draw all men to myself. That's the way we preach here. That's the way we teach here. That's the way we counsel here. We lift up Christ. And that's what changes your life, brothers and sisters. You got an issue in your life? You got a struggle that you've been hiding? Get counsel from someone who loves Christ in the word. 
That's how you overcome these things. Fourth thought here, um, drawing, the drawing power of Christ. Um, look at verse 47 with me. These women are hanging around, aren't they? They have not left. Mary Magdalene and the Mary of mother of Joses were, were looking on to see where they laid him. I see here you have these men who I'm grateful for, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Now you have these prominent ladies who, who lay down their life and will follow Christ to the end. They keep trusting in the Lord. They keep their eyes on Jesus. And I know it's physical here. I, I'm, I'm making a connection here, application. They keep their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. They won't turn away. And they... They know that it's gonna cost them. They're not care about the limelight anymore. They wanna follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, they, they wanna honor Jesus. And even in his death. And they know that it's gonna cost them. These are glaring examples for us. Let me close with one passage, Colossians chapter three, and then we'll be done. Colossians chapter three. Just to tie all this together for us. Colossians chapter 3 says this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. So one of the great things we're going to see next week. That Christ comes out of the grave. Guess what? We do too. When he died, we died. When he was raised from the dead, we're raised from the dead. What a beautiful thing. We'll get into this next week as we see the resurrection. But those who have been raised up with Christ, if you're saved, if you're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's captured your heart and your mind, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking Christ. Hey, listen, what's robbing you right now of seeking Christ? Something's in your life. I have things in mind that, you know, just... Issues, family issues, financial issues, this or that, maybe pulling on you like it pulls on me. And pretty soon you find yourself losing your joy because you're not seeking Christ. And yes, there are difficulties. We live in a sinful world. We're sinful sinners ourselves. But listen, we'll lose our joy very quickly when we're not seeking the things above. What are you seeking that's robbing your joy of Jesus? What are you engaged in? What are you doing that's sinful? you know that God would not want you doing. And because of that, it's robbing your gaze of Christ and your boldness and your security and all of that because you turn your eyes from him onto an issue. What is in your life that needs to go? Could you be like Mary Magdalene? Could you be like Joseph or Nicodemus who says, I'll give it up for you, Jesus, if you ask? See, I wanna be that man. Do you want to be that man or that woman, that boy or girl, so dedicated to Christ that you're willing to give it all up to follow him? Is he worthy of that? Is kajillion years for life with Christ versus a few measly years on this earth, is it worth giving up things where the world has its tentacles in us? See, if we want to be a Joseph, if we want to be a Nicodemus, if you want to be a Mary, keep your eyes on Christ. He's our only hope. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. Past it seems so simple, Lord, when we first look at it. But a deeper look finds these people captured with you, Jesus. They're willing to give everything up. They have nothing without you. That's what they had come to that conclusion. They don't want the world anymore. They know the world is damned. It's 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 has nothing to offer them and they're willing to lay their lives on the line to follow Jesus to be with Jesus even in a burial and so Lord there's a great example there for us we're living in a world that hates the things of you they're showing it more clearly as time goes on what will we do Lord Father I know there's some in this room doubtlessly who have lost their joy they're struggling with sin issues Lord and They've just been robbed of their joy in Jesus. You can restore that, Lord, and I pray that they would take time today, even now, to confess and repent of things that are robbing them of their joy. And that they would turn their eyes back to Jesus, to find joy in Jesus, that he truly died for them. Lord, if that doesn't restore our souls, there's nothing that can. So Lord, help us gaze at you in a way that causes us to bend the knee. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? Before I read this, let me remind you that there's always an elder down front. There is a team of men and women through those doors over there that would be more than happy to meet with you. Don't leave here today if God's pressed something on your heart and you need to deal with that. Please listen to this closing benediction. May God in his graciousness continue to shine his light upon us. May he be merciful to us in our weaknesses and may he be glorified in our strengths. May we be captured by the cross of Christ and may his finished work cause us to stand unashamed for our Savior. May we continue to seek Christ in his great position of authority over our lives and may our hearts and minds be consistently set on him and not on ourselves. And may we long, long, for his appearance. Amen.